Yeah. So, like I said, I, I want to make the intro a little more normal, and I, you know, I don't like, I don't like podcast theme music. Some of it's all right, but a lot of this stuff seems to borrow itself from the kind of, uh, you know, '90s alternative rock radio hosts uh, kind of songbook of intro music. So I'm trying to get out of that, and this might end up actually being our intro, and much like songs from alternative rock in the 80s and 90s that seem to live on into the podcast world for some inexplicable reason uh products live on so brian i'm gonna i'll send it over to you because i know you kind of thought up this conversational topic but what are the two gorillas in the room we're gonna just dissect today a little bit and maybe we'll take one before the other um yeah, I think I, what I wanted to tackle today is why Excel and Craigslist are still such ridiculously important parts of our culture. Um, each are, I don't know how old, um, I, I got to think Craigslist is in like the 1994 early Amazon range, potentially earlier than that, and Excel's from, from before that, obviously. Um, and I, I can't imagine that these are the best tools to do the jobs that they do, but they consistently do them. And I hear startup pitches pretty consistently trying to replace either wholesale replace Excel or Craigslist or pick off sort of pieces of Excel or Craigslist and do them better. And they seem to never work. And so I thought that was a fascinating thing to kind of dive into today. Yeah, it's kind of the cult of the entrenched product. Let's just take a quick poll. Uh, how many times a week does everyone here use Excel? For my part, I'm pretty limited. I use it about once or twice, and really that's just to arrange QA scenarios. I'd say, it, I don't know. Well, I never touched Craigslist, but uh, the I used to touch Excel, like, I don't know. I'd open it up maybe five times a day, um, at least when I was in school. And then since I don't know there have been like weeks where I would use it for hours a day um, and then I guess for the past four months I haven't I don't actually recall the last time I opened it I use it every day um, I'm not a programmer which is why I use it every day um, but I also find that like, even though I think it's a great product, my goal is always to use it less than I currently do um, and to find other tools that will do things that Excel does better than, than it does them. But um, again, as a non-programmer, I'm not working primarily in like a coding language. So I find that for a lot of things that need to happen quick, uh, Excel is great for that. So uh, Drew, what are, the best, what are the best substitutions you think you've found? And kind of on top of that too, just maybe before you say that, what are you using it for generally? I mean, you're you're, uh, well, Brian didn't say, but I'm guessing you're using Excel more than anybody else here. Yeah. So I mean, the main the main way that I my main workflow that involves Excel is um, writing SQL queries and pulling data from the database at my job. You know, I work at Uber, so. Like I spend all day pulling data out of Uber's databases using SQL, exporting them into Excel, and then often just like either glancing at the numbers 
or making some kind of quick chart that can be like thrown into a PowerPoint deck and like shown to somebody else. Um, what I've been, what I've been sort of trying to do more is, um, teach myself R or like a comparable language like Python and then, um, pull data using SQL and then rather than exporting it out into Excel, taking R or Python and, and doing all of the post-processing, uh, using those languages. But since I'm still learning them, um, it's not that efficient for me to, to do it that way. So if I'm in a hurry then I'm still using Excel a lot and I see a lot of people that I work with that are, um, kind of in a similar state to me, but not as interested in learning something like R and they're doing more, I, what I, in my opinion, more than they should be doing with Excel. Um, and they're basically writing in a programming language using Excel, but they don't, maybe acknowledge that or, or realize it. And I know, I know enough about programming to know that some of the things that I see happening in Excel could be done much more elegantly, uh, outside of it. I, so when you say you're writing SQL queries, what's like the, what's the normal flow for that? Like I've never heard of anyone using Excel as essentially like a, a SQL front end. So what's the, uh, like how does that work exactly? Yeah, this might be a weird quirk of Uber and how, how things are done there, but we have an internal tool called Query Builder that was built by an engineer at the company like four or five years ago, which made it, it it's a very user-friendly like front end for, for SQL that is you know internal to Uber. So you can not know that much about anything and get pretty good at SQL just using this tool. It's, it just kind of like takes away a lot of the things that like, uh, you wouldn't want to have to like waste your time with if you were learning it and, and focuses on just like the raw, like fundamentals of writing the code. Um, but one of the things, the features that it has is that when you pull the data, you can export it as a CSV. So, um, a lot of people just because they come into the company most familiar with Excel, they, you know, pull the bare minimum of data and then export it into Excel and then do everything else in Excel, just because if that's what you know, then you're kind of going to fall back on that if you can. And a lot of people, you know, they come from finance backgrounds or, or these places where they were never, they were never trying to learn a programming language, but, but they were really good at Excel because that was the lingua franca of, of their company and that's imported to Uber and, and how, you know, it gets reproduced everywhere you go. So, um, I don't know if, if that workflow where SQL feeds into, into Excel is like something that generalizes to other companies, but that's how it's done for us. You know, even the, uh, the data scientists that I work with, um, I, he works in R most of the time, but it's not uncommon for him to like, do some sort of a SQL dump and then take the data and manipulate it in Excel for extended periods of time. Um, are you just like, are, are you, when you say that you're using it uh, to write queries, are you like writing raw uh, SQL into like, into some cells or is it like they're a VBA backend that's handling um, like the actual input and then creating a sheet for you or how does that work? So the tool that I was describing, which is called Query Builder internally, it's it's basically a text editor that um, you know every every execution of a query has a URL. So you're you're working in your browser, um, 
just writing writing the code and in, into a text editor in the browser. Um, and then, you know, it's like a, it's got kind of a user-friendly interface. So you just press a button to run the query and then press another button to export the, the CSV. But okay. so definitely not like, starting in Excel. So Excel's like the post-processing, like you've got all exactly. the data that you yeah. need and now you can actually exactly. do the hard lifting. So, so do you That's think right. that Excel actually slows you down at any point or is it is it a pretty clean facilitator of what you need to do? So having having sort of gone through this process of teaching myself things about programming while also doing this job and, and being familiar with the SQL Excel workflow that I just described the whole time, um, I think what I've realized is looking around at, at some of my peers, there's not always a realization that if you're doing the same thing over and over again, you could, you could automate it really quickly um, using... A, a more sophisticated language. And I think that's what Excel is not built for. Excel's for when you don't know whether what you're going to have to do will ever be like repeated. I think it's really good for basically like messing around with data and trying to figure out what you want to do with it. But once you know what you're trying to do, then I think, and certainly if you have to do it multiple times, then I think something like R or another language like that becomes uh, much more appropriate. Um, and I think some people have like realized that over time, but because we're working in this weird space where we're like not, we're not trained as, as software engineers or data scientists, but we're, we've kind of like grown into those roles. Um, Excel has been a springboard, at least for me, where when I started learning R, I actually knew I think I was more prepared to think about what I wanted to do because I was able to map what I had done in Excel before to, to what I was trying to do in R. So it was really helpful for that. But I don't think that's necessarily like how it was. I don't think it was designed with that in mind, but it did kind of prepare me to think in a more logical that's way. That's super interesting. And it, it's sort of, um, it makes me think about one thing that you said is really interesting where you, you said that, you don't think people realize that doing these repetitive tasks is necessarily a bad thing or something that could be sped up. Um, and I think back when I was doing finance way back a million years ago, um, we would create these sheets every evening and we had all these clients. So I was in capital markets. So we're like tracking stocks for individual clients and like Home Depot was a client and every day I would update their daily report in Excel. And I knew more freaking like all ESV just and that's, that's the simple one. I'm forgetting what it was, but like we had those classes where you wouldn't use the mouse. And so you felt like you were just flying through stuff because you were using all these keyboard shortcuts and Excel is always like, since it's not, or when I used it, it wasn't like web-based. It was, it was super, super fast. And I think it's like that, that thing where you'd rather, like I'd rather go a longer route and not sit in traffic than sit in traffic and, and save 10 minutes. Um, I think that might be something that's happening with Excel where people are just really good at navigating it, but it's something repeatable and it, it takes forever. And I don't know, just, just a thought that came up while you were, while you were talking about that. That's an excellent analogy. The, the traffic analogy I think is like perfect. Like it feels good to do something the way you know how to do it. Even, and you can actually totally lose track of, of how long it's taking you. Like it's not common to spend like, or I mean, it's not uncommon to spend like 20 to 30 minutes 
on a task you've done before in Excel and not feel like it's taking that long. But when you think about it, 20 to 30 minutes is an eternity. Yeah, I, uh, I started learning Excel. I, I was really forced into it through school uh, alongside uh, learning to program for the first time. And in that context, it really felt like Excel was a visual programming language, like almost like um, if you know the, uh, that programming language for kids, uh, Scratch, it felt like that for, uh, for adults. So Jordan, actually, this is, this is an interesting point which is, you gave me a nice lead in there, but I, I, I've been thinking about this too. You know, We're drawing this interesting line between Excel and Craigslist. We weren't really talking about Craigslist yet, and we won't just yet, but one of the things that I think is similar about both of them is they're both highly extensible platforms. So they both manifest themselves as whatever you want them to be. They both allow you to create the new thing that's actually the thing that you want. Uh, so there, there's some some kind of platforms, especially now as we're in kind of a more web-based niche market thing. You know, there are some platforms you could go to online and just create a postcard, right? Like paperless post or something. There, there's that's not an extensible platform. It has a very specific purpose. It wants you to do one thing, and as soon as digital postcards are not a thing, they're going to have some problems. But Excel is a lot like a lot of the cloud industry has been, which it provides you the ecosystem. And if you think about it, there's a whole you know, generation and even a prior generation of business analysts and accountants and people who this is has been their ecosystem. You know, I've, I've witnessed this at my home. Some of the things that Diane is able to do with spreadsheets is, is quite amazing. It's quite programmatic, to your point. And it's a highly extensible platform. You know, Craigslist is is similar. I don't want to push the conversation there just yet, but I do think that is the thing they share, which is that Craigslist can be whatever you want it to be. Do you want a roommate? Do you want to sell stuff? Do you want to buy stuff? Do you want a, a relationship? I mean, there's a lot of stuff there, and the extensibility of the platforms is is a big selling point. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and it's sort of like this: when you have this Excel hammer, everything looks like an Excel nail, and it's like. I think it's one of those constants where you can go from job to job and probably the framework for like marketing or for planning or for finance or whatever it is, is going to be done in Excel and it's going to be good enough and everyone's going to feel good about it because, you know, you're, you're ramping up to speed on anything else you're doing, but at least you know how to do, you know, copy and, and paste cells. Um, and I think that's the problem when, when we have these startups and I'm, I'm really curious to hear your guys' thoughts on it, we'll have these startups pitch and they'll say like, you know, people do these marketing campaigns in Excel and it's the wrong tool for it, but it's the tool that they know, so they use it. And then when you try and get them to switch, it's so difficult because I think it like that sort of behavior change, I think whenever you're using Excel, it's for something in your mind that should be done really, really quickly. Um, Even if it's taking way, like really long amounts of time over a week or a month. And so when you try and get people to change that behavior, they're sort of like, screw you, you're going to take, I'm going to have to learn this new program over a week. That's an incredible amount of time. Uh, and it's tough to, tough to show them the value there. And it, it seems like this weird safety net crutch. Um, I don't know. I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on that. And also like wh- where, what industries would be ripe for a change to start replacing Excel? Is it possible? All that stuff is really interesting to me. 
Well, I think the best thing about Excel is that it's so like insanely simple for anyone to get started with it. Like it's, and you can use it like in two kind of directions. One is just like a, a view layer to some underlying data. It makes it really easy to consume that. And then additionally, it's uh, like a, a manipulation uh, tool. Like you can, a, anyone can say like, you, you pull up a spreadsheet and you can teach someone who's five how to use it, like the, the fundamental features. Um, and then from there, it's really easy to say, oh, and by the way, if you like if you use this equals prefix, you can actually start reasoning about the data that you've laid out here. And almost like the vast majority of human, uh, like symbolic reasoning problems can be reduced to two dimensions. Um, it, it's, and this is kind of the same thing with Craigslist too. Uh, it's, they're both insanely simple to, uh, to learn at like their basic features. You know, the other thing that I was thinking about is, is what entrenches, what entrenches this behavior that everyone is super reliant on it. I mean, I joke, we have the running joke in my house, which is Google Docs, basically Google Sheets versus Excel, because I'm betting on the cloud platforms because, of course, that's my ecosystem. You know, I'm going to be a guy who's developing cloud platforms, so, of course, I want that to win. And, you know, you know, they're both megaliths, but I'm generally more favorable to Google than Microsoft. Let's just say it has to do with, you know, coming of age and, and the fact that all open source old school Linux people still have an inexplicable hatred for Microsoft. I don't really understand it anymore, but you just got to hate Microsoft. Uh, so there's that. But, you know, beside that debate in my home, you know, what entrenches people? And I'm going to give a theory is that there is this, you see this in a lot of other industries too, but there's a power user class of people. And Drew and some other people I know might actually be in that class of people who are so good at something that the switchover costs are actually quite high. Whereas for me, to switch from Excel to Google Sheets is is not even a cost. They're, they All the features that I use in Excel are available in Google Sheets, and not only that, they're the exact same implementation. Uh, but when I talk to Diane about it, she says, well, I need X, Y, and Z, and 15 other things that aren't actually in Google Sheets, and it, it really is a high switching cost for her. So I, I do wonder if there's there's this, this, this high-performance group who just actually hasn't gotten the features yet in another platform. Well, even beyond that, I mean, I think that a second order effect, which you could almost call a kind of network effect, is that because this community of power users has evolved um, now with just being able to Google any challenge you encounter in, in Excel. I mean, I have extreme confidence that I can figure out how to do anything I need to do in Excel if I don't already know just by Googling what I'm trying to do. And I'll immediately find an extremely articulate answer to my question um, and that that gets easier and easier um, by orders of magnitude as there are more users uh, for a product. So like if if there was a competitor or like an Excel killer or whatever um, that was trying to get a foothold, um, it would be very difficult just because the user community wouldn't be nearly as as widespread. So when I Googled how to how to do something, whatever the 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 new competitor is like. I would have a much harder time figuring it out. So I think that that kind of entrenches Excel even further. Yeah, community is a big kicker. This is something I was talking about with uh, 
Brian's class actually this past week, but talking about when they're, uh, a lot of them are business people who are on the non-technical side and they're trying to evaluate developers. And one of the big points I make is you have to go with language and framework suggestions that have a robust community. And part of what we suggested to them, but I, I probably need to describe to them a little more fully is how do you, how do you evaluate? You're a non-technical person. How do you evaluate if something has a strong community? And maybe the, the answer with something like Excel is, oh, it's anecdotal. We all, everybody we know uses Excel. They actually use it as the descriptive term for the spreadsheet program they're using. They'll say Excel even though they may actually just be working with a CSV, right? But they're probably working with Excel. It, it's, it's like Kleenex or uh, Velcro, you know, one of those things that's actually a trademark, but people just call the thing that is trademarked what it is. And I mean, Excel has almost got that level of brand loyalty when it comes to spreadsheet and data analysis kind of work. So, you know, that kind of, that level of entrenchment is super hard to pull people away from. One of the interesting things though, is that that, uh, that almost seems like a distribution issue and less of a, like a core functionality issue. Cause when you look at uh, Google sheets, um, for the vast majority of users, people who are not power users at all, like as you said, Sheets is entirely sufficient, and it works like in exactly the way you'd expect it to. Um, it almost seems like, as oh, I, I don't know how much this is true, and I guess we'll see it play out over the next few years. But um, as web distribution usurps, and it, it seems like it pretty much has at this point, desktop um, software is. Like, are we going to lose that kind of, uh, that, uh, sorry, I'm blanking, that kind of, uh, brand loyalty, um, between, um, Excel and the actual core spreadsheet, um, functionality? I mean, I'd be hard pressed to move away from Gmail at this point, And I think a lot of people here would. So I, I don't, I don't know if the platform quite, creates the lack of loyalty that you're suggesting but i i do get where you're at i mean stuff on the web kind of the the post cloud world tends to move a little faster but i think you know getting entrenched in a web platform is still pretty easy i'm i mean i'm pretty committed to gmail i'm pretty committed to trello uh i still use this task management system that's arguably not the best it's called remember the milk but i've been using it for so many years that migrating all my tasks would be too hard uh, so, you know, I, I, I have the exact same problem, even though I'm somebody who kind of advocates trying new stuff. So in the case of, uh, uh, sheets versus Excel, um, one thing that I've noticed as far like platform differences is that it's way easier to build add-ons for, at least in my experience, um, it's way easier to build add-ons for sheets because you can just like pull up, um, any one of Google's little like documentation bits and like it's nearly JavaScript um, and you can just write your code in there um, and it gets plugged in as a uh, as your own custom function whereas you have to have a little bit more uh, robust programming chops to do the same with VBA. Yeah not only robust chops but it's also a cultural thing you know I mean Microsoft and the client side office suite which let's just be honest is 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 the most successful maybe ever 
desktop product. I mean, we, we, we have to run the numbers on that, I suppose. But we, what we are doing is we're doing the equivalent of saying, well, you know, is LeBron James going to be better than Michael Jordan? That's what we're doing right now. So don't think that the Microsoft Office suite hasn't had a profound effect on the global business community. But one of the things that Microsoft really missed on, and it's okay, it's a part of their era, was the idea that you need to open up the platform more. Now, they did it to to a certain extent, but not to the level that modern cloud systems do. I mean, Amazon and Google are light years ahead of them in terms of encouraging development, in terms of making APIs open and accessible, available to people. And, you know, I think that silo did a lot for Microsoft from a revenue perspective. And, uh, you know, they're going to be, even if they're doing absolutely nothing, they're going to be around for another hundred years because they made all their money up front. But it's one of those things that, you know, may have actually faltered in the long run. Because I agree with you, Jordan, I would not this at this moment build anything uh, utilizing the Microsoft VBA or, or C-sharp APIs, whatever they are, uh, the Google APIs are very easy to work with. And I've already worked with multiple things utilizing the Sheets and Docs APIs. So I think we're getting a little bit technically into the weeds, I'm realizing, partially because Brian and Drew have been a little quiet here. But let's, let's, let's use that uh, abrupt segue as a little bit of a way to talk about uh, Craigslist as well in relation to this problem of kind of an entrenched player, a different kind of entrenched player. Um, doesn't maybe deal with the professional niche as much, but uh, maybe Brian. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, and I, I do want to ask just one one quick, just to put a bow on the Excel talk. Um, as you guys are talking through it, no, I, I've, I've only got one more question that I wanted to ask you guys, uh, and then I'm happy to move on unless you want to keep going with it. Um, I do think it's super interesting, but um, I, I guess like I just assumed that it needed to be to be replaced, and uh, I'm I'm just curious as to whether whether you think there's a real problem here. And and I've like you guys mentioned that you when I think of Google Docs, I think of it. I mean, I, I guess it's technically a different product. Um, it's certainly Microsoft versus Google um, web and all. It, it's obviously a different product, but I don't, I don't think of it as like I think of Airtable as a different product to Excel, and I use Airtable for a lot of things and tried to start weaning myself off Excel um, for more products that are focused on solving a specific problem that maybe Excel does pretty well, um, and then they would do really well. Uh, but I guess that's that's the question that I would want to end with. Um, is do you think that it's necessary to even try and replace Excel, or do you think it's it's just sort of good enough? So I mean, this is this is a good place to end it too, and I'm glad you brought it back to Excel. But I I find this funny because it's kind of like for developers and people who've been around a lot of startup founders, the Excel killer is pitched to you four or five times a year. Uh, so it it is this kind of interesting, you know, it's like the search for the holy grail. It's there's a bunch of different groups trying to do it and they've all got a different technique and they never quite find it. Um, you know, my take with these kind of highly specific markets is they just get fractured uh to down to their specific use cases and you alluded to that a little bit with Airtable, which is that it's more of a specific product. And they're going to break it down, break it down, break it down some more. 
And I think there's always going to be there's going to be these holdouts to a level that, you know, 25 years from now, there's going to be this article about people who are still using Excel. And it's going to also talk about how good they are with the system because they've just so doubled down on knowledge instead of uh, focusing on moving to new platforms. But I think, you know, the market with this kind of thing inevitably gets fractured. And, and part of that's just generational, right? There are fewer kids today who will be introduced to the Microsoft suite of tools, and therefore it'll become less of an educational imperative, whether at the you know high school level or even at the collegiate level. It'll be more of a mix, and you'll have more professors thinking, oh, we can use Google Sheets or you know whatever else we want to do. So I, I think there's just a slow attrition with time with any of these kind of products. But I do think Excel is going to be one of those... You know, we're going to see it in, in, in 30 years still with some kind of crazy power user base. I kind of perceive Excel as like this middle ground between uh, data uh, visualization and like a, a workbench tool. Um, and all the semi-successful or very successful actually tools that I've seen that accomplish one of those t- two things kind of tend to, to focus on one in particular. So like you've got Tableau, which is really good for visualization that totally blows Excel out of the water as far as like what you can do with data um, rendering. And then you've got tools like um, Jupyter Notebooks or uh, what else would it be? Um, I don't know, like Python for really hardcore data manipulation. And at the middle, you end up with, I, I think the product that finally wins is uh, the one that has the le- lowest learning curve. And Excel right now seems to be that product partly because of distribution um, and everything else like all the other functionalities that Excel does like a decent job at but isn't the best at can be parceled out to more specialized products like there's a visualization that crops up on the internet um, occasionally I see it around all the time where it's uh, the Craigslist homepage and then it's got a like arrows drawn to all these different companies that have taken uh, angles on each of the different links on the Craigslist homepage, and it's kind of a similar thing with those yeah, two bits of functionality. I think you're probably probably exactly right. And I, I saw something the other day that supports your point about just removing as much friction as possible. And Excel is just always the easier solution. There's, um, I saw an article that was talking about music uh, listening stats for people who had both Sonos and Alexa in their apartments or houses or whatever. And uh, it was most people who had a Sonos system and then got an Alexa. And obviously, Sonos sounds way, way better, and they hadn't synced the two up yet. I think that's a relatively new uh, feature you can do. And basically, people listened to music on Alexa like 30 or 40 times more than they listened on, on Sonos just because it was slightly easier, even though it wasn't better. Um, I, I think that, yeah, I think you can never underestimate how how important removing just even small parts of friction are for a process like that. Um, happy to, to transition us into, uh, Trevor, what do you think? Time, time to talk Craigslist? I think Craigslist is a good point, although we didn't, we didn't hear any of Drew's thoughts on the future of Excel, not that we have to. But I am interested. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that I think I have to add, and this might actually be a good way to segue from Excel to Craigslist, as we were talking about why it's so hard to, to really, like, you know, break into what Excel is doing or, or replace it, um, is that it's all of these different things that are bundled together 
really well or like maybe even unintentionally but like i find myself even using excel as like a calculator all the way to like doing more advanced like data visualization so like i think that there's opportunities to unbundle certain things that work well in excel and make products out of those but what's hard to replace is the fact that you can just open up excel and and do like 20 different things that you need to do without having to think about you know, what tool do I need to use to do that? If you're working with numbers, you can pretty much, unless you're like either working at a really high level or, or doing something really specific that not that many people have to do, you can be pretty confident that, that you can use Excel for it. Um, and I think that there's a lot of mental energy just in like figuring out what tool you need to start using or, or downloading a new, a new piece of software and Excel kind of solves that problem. And I, I think that the, the Craigslist is similar, actually, and that you know, not to like jump the gun on talking about it, but it's a bunch of different things that are all kind of bundled together, and you just go to it and then figure out what you need to do with it. Yeah, I think there's only been one time uh, that I've uh, sat down with Excel to solve some sort of a data problem and thought, oh, shoot, I can't do this in Excel. I have to pull up in Python. I don't know. It's gonna. It feels like it loses Excel's awesome advantage of being super easy to learn, mm -hmm. and at the same time, being able to perform like kind of inline logic about other things in a a doc would be kind of nice. So like, I saw you were using uh, the Dropbox's new paper uh, product. What do you think of that? I love it. As relative to like this this uh, Coda idea. Yeah, so I, I love it and I live in it, and I think it. I think it's just an interesting use case. And I was about to ask you because, so I, I run Tacklebox as my own thing. I'm the only employee, and so I get to sort of test stuff out and implement it. And there's no like legacy anything to deal with. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really easy for me to test out paper, which I love, and I use it for all of the meetings that we have with entrepreneurs. I use it, and it's really easy to just keep like an updated log of what we're doing. Um, have you ever used uh, like Google Docs as extensively as using paper right now? I did, but the reason, but my Google Docs is all clogged with stuff that I've done before Tacklebox and there's tons of folders and it's, the UI isn't great and I j it's just really clean to create flow. Yeah, yeah. It's clear to, it's like clean to create new folders for every session of Tacklebox, have everybody in there. Um, it's like my dedicated tackle box thing. It's it's the only thing I do in there. Whereas you'll get like my personal packing list in like Google Docs. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I stick with paper. And then the other thing that I use is Airtable instead of Excel. Um, but like if you if you were trying to transfer some of your work over to Coda, how difficult would that be just based on stuff you've done in the past? You're not really, you'd have to, I'm just curious. It looks like you'd have to start from scratch. Yeah. Like it, it looks like there's like it's really easy to work with Excel because like you can dump anything to an, into a CSV or like and most things have like an export to Excel option. Any sort of like uh, table view on the internet will have that. Whereas this Coda thing, I I have a hard time imagining. If there's like if there's any uh, possibility for like cross-platform use, mm -hmm. like 
it's almost like if you're working in techs. Are you familiar with techs? No. It's like a, it's kind of like a, just like a markdown language. Okay. It's built for like, like applying, like it's like a, a, I don't know. Trevor, how would you describe techs? Wow. You're getting me with a tough one. It's been a few years since I used it. And when I did, I used latex, yeah, which I yeah. guess is a newer standard. Yeah, same thing. But it, it's kind of like Markdown. It's kind of like an MD type language for writing technical documentation, basically. Yeah, it's like the purpose. I think the initial idea behind it was there needed to be a way to programmatically represent uh, like mathematical formulas in documents at a very high resolution. So like the end solution was to have a sort of like a, a special purpose uh, text language uh, that allowed you to like write in like, oh, okay, these four symbols mean like a super high resolution sigma or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, but you can only use latex type uh, documents in latex. Like there, there's no interoperability with any other sort of system. Huh. It's like latex to PDF, done, that's it. And it seems like Coda might have the same sort of experience if it even gets as much traction as Latex did. Yeah. I actually remember, Jordan, you're unlocking some interesting memories. Uh, first <laughs> time I learned Latex was pretty much the night before a paper was due. And one of my, uh, I took this graduate student class, uh, which was kind of awesome, but also kind of daunting because it was a lot more. It was a lot more algorithm oriented and a lot less programming. I mean, we barely hit a computer except to write these papers. This is the fun. And I said, well, how am I supposed to make a formula look good? And then I found this, you know, I was on some Linux forum and found this thing called LaTeX and I was all excited about it. I spent the whole night learning about how to do LaTeX and how to make sure it compiled down to the right PDF. And not the whole night writing my paper, <laughs> which was the whole point of this process. So um, the paper was... It, it 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 had gaps, but uh, the <laughs> oh, formatting was, was lovely. Yeah, <laughs> formatting was top notch. That's and that's going to be the problem with any of these replacements. Is it's going to be so difficult to, like when I use Airtable, I love Airtable and I'm committed to it, and I use it for mostly for application management because it has like one killer. And I think that's the thing. Like you need to have this one killer feature that is just significantly better than Excel. And for me, you're able to create forms like a, a Google form directly from Airtable. So you have you have uh, your standard spreadsheet, you have a bunch oh, of nice. columns, and you just change the view to a form, and then you have this beautiful shareable form. And when people respond to it as if it were a survey, and I, I use it for all the applications for Dacbox, they apply. It sends me an email when they apply. It sends them an email with their form, and it doesn't look like a crappy Excel sheet. It looks like a really nice Google form. Um, and then I have all, everybody sort of managed in this spreadsheet, and that's awesome. And so I, I use it for that. But then when I'm trying to use it for regular Excel things, it, it just gets so frustrating because none of the shortcuts work, and it's slow, and it drives me nuts. But it does have that one killer feature, which is pretty unique for me. Yeah. One of the nice things about Excel is that it forces you into this two-dimensional representation of your problem. Um, which can be good because it like it makes you think about it in a certain manner that is easy to uh, to reason about for other people. Whereas something I haven't used Lighttable, but I imagine maybe it has the same issue. And I, I this is certainly going to be the case with Coda. There is no 
uh, like the platform itself is not very opinionated about how you represent your problem, um, which means and someone that's coming to your like they have a like this demo view up uh, in the article that you shared. Um, someone that looks at this for the first time is going to be like, oh, what is all of this stuff and what is this formula referring to? I have no idea what's going on. Um, whereas with Excel, uh, it's just not the thing. Everyone knows. Or they claim to know. Uh, by of the course. way, I want today's XKCD is utterly perfect for this episode. Brian, that's why we know you chose a good episode topic. So normally reading out a comic on a podcast does not do it justice, but in this case, it's just a person sitting at a laptop with some text bubbles over them, so I think I can actually read it out, and it's pretty good. Nothing happens in the visual, in other words. But it says, I started the day with lots of problems, but now after hours and hours of work, I have lots of problems in a spreadsheet. That is today's XKCD. I like that. That's for, for those of you listening in the future, <laughs> which is all of you, uh, because a new XKCD comes out on Wednesday. Uh, this is xkcd.com slash 1906. But yeah, you can check out all XKCD has to say about spreadsheets. It's probably more than just that. Uh, I, I tried to get us there. Uh, I'll try one more time to, to push us towards Craigslist. Although I do like the spreadsheet conversation, but let, let's start by talking about what you know. What do these platforms have in common? I'll I'll just posit a little theory of my own, which is just that they're both open platforms. They let you be whatever you want to be. Uh, you know, Excel gives you a blank slate to create some super nifty data analysis, and Craigslist gives you an open slate to create some super weird social interaction. Uh, whether or not it's you know dating somebody or selling them something, uh, and you know that's that's kind of the fundamental you know the the fundamental thread between these two systems that keeps them relevant. But what else do you guys think about Craigslist? Uh, any any musings on that? Yeah, I, I um why I thought this was an interesting one to compare it against is like I have I don't I, I think that Excel could be replaced in almost every use case um, and improved upon and but I understand why it's popular like all the things that we talked about make sense to me like there's a community around it you know how to use it um, while there are some products that are that are better at doing some things none of us were able to say like well why wouldn't you just use this like Excel is is generally good enough um, Craigslist is different to me Craigslist is insane like when we when i googled excel killers i got a bunch of startups when i googled craigslist killers i got a bunch of people who killed people through craigslist um i craigslist like the the thing that it's built on the the way that you sort of you create this marketplace there's a better version out there and that is the one that has people's real identities based in Facebook and based on reviews like the Airbnb model like that's out there and people still use Craigslist and it freaking boggles my mind um, so that, that was the thing that but I, I understand it it's reduces the friction and if you want to sell things quickly and you'd have to kind of get it's like the old problem of like if you're trying to throw the curve in the classroom if you get everyone to get a zero everyone gets a hundred but it's it's tough to do that um, 
I don't know. It's it's a it's a stumper for me. I'm interested in, in what you guys think. I'm actually curious what um, someone mentioned that they don't use Craigslist really, but like I'm curious for those of you that do use it, what you use it for, um, if anything other than just to sell random stuff that you're trying to get rid of. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was going to a, the Head in the Heart the Head in the Heart concert in Central Park, and a buddy of mine is an ER doctor, and uh, we got tickets. Um, and then he wasn't able to go because he had to work. And then it turns out that he was going to get out early, and so he found out ten minutes before the concert. He went on Craigslist, found one ticket, uh, bought the ticket from the guy, but it was a physical ticket, and the guy was outside. So I went, met him, got the physical ticket took a picture of it. My buddy got the PDF, scanned his way in. And it was this like, I mean, it worked. I think that's my thing. Every time I use Craigslist, I'm just amazed that it actually worked and it tends to generally work. Um, what do you, what do you guys use it for? I'm generally tickets. Tickets is the big one. Um, I don't think I've done much other than tickets, um, in quite some time, if, if ever. So, you know, through the course of my existence, I've been one to believe that the stronger platform will win the, you know, the platform war, which is really, when you look at Craigslist and a lot of what Craigslist does, uh, eBay is the stronger platform. And I have been refuted in that there's just a lot of people who don't want to go that route. And there are some interesting... You could call them market failures, market opportunities that end up happening in a Craigslist context. And a couple of examples I'll give you. One, I do live in New York, and uh, you know, certainly when I first moved here, I lived with no less than three Craigslist roommates. Uh, all were great. Not a not you know any complaint about that. But just there is a. It's still very hard to find someone to live with. And to sublet with, and I think part of that is that uh, there is murky legality on that, so I don't think anybody quite wants to touch that issue in an official capacity. But it's it's so interesting that the gray market uh, kind of persists for that. That's obviously anyone who lives in New York will know that, you know, Craigslist roommates are a totally normal thing. Um, another big one is furniture, and the big thing about that is furniture has the obvious shipping problem. And although eBay has a local pickup option, which I'm a big advocate of, people just don't really seem to utilize it at the same level. And if I was to do eBay local pickup, I'd probably get a bunch of people in New Jersey who are basically professional furniture sellers. Uh, But if I was to do Craigslist, I'll get a bunch of people in my neighborhood who are moving to England and don't know what to do with their dressers. Uh, In terms of a market opportunity, the latter is what I want. Um, not only are they close to me, but they're also people who have a need to get rid of these items quickly. They will take a lower bid. They're probably already taking a lower bid. Whereas the professional furniture seller in New Jersey, you know, they have no interest in taking a lower bid from me. They're running this as a business. So there are these kind of weird uh, market misses, market failures that, that Craigslist totally papers over. So furniture has been a big one for us. And... I think there's a lot of categories like that. I'm not even in on some of the other ones, but I know uh, real estate investors who actually search through Craigslist to find 
landlords who have uh, or who are clearly mom and pop landlords, and instead of uh, applying for their rental listings because they have no interest in renting from them, they actually offer to buy their properties from them. They basically do demographic search to figure the person putting out this Craigslist ad is probably a real estate owner, you know, in the 60 plus range, and they might be interested in selling their property anyway and, and moving on. They want to move to Florida or something. So there's there's a lot of these interesting market uh, niches that are filled by the fact that it's kind of the unplatform. It's not really a platform for anything, and therefore it serves the needs of everything you wouldn't have expected. You know, you could say it's... Um you gave two specific examples right there of things that are hard or that benefit from hyperlocality and from um, like really like extreme ease of use. Um, and if you think about like the natural platform dynamics, like what makes platforms work, um, Craigslist and all of these things, um, like in order to make the hyperlocality uh, aspect of the platform work well. They need to attract as many people as possible in as like as dense an area as possible. Um, and the core like functionality of Craigslist is just like click two buttons, list your thing, whatever that thing is. Um, so if you can get as many people as possible doing all these random things for which hyperlocality matters, Craigslist wins, even if the UI completely sucks and you don't care about 99% of the uh, the site's offerings. Definitely. And, and Trevor, I think you bring up a really good point that I'm almost embarrassed to realize that I just completely whiffed on. Um, I just assumed that the like Airbnb social proof um, or or like trail of stuff that you've sold and reviews and all that is a better method. But in, in the situations you brought up, it's not at all. A lot of times these are people who are selling their couch one time. These aren't like you specifically don't want the professional couch seller who's going to set up an eBay account and is it's basically just going to be you buying from essentially the website, but from a different with a different coat of paint on it. Um, you want the person who's leaving who has a couch um, that you can get and they're only going to do this once. And if it was a platform where you saw how many couches they'd sold, you probably wouldn't go with them. But since there's this weird social contract that it seems most of us adhere to with Craigslist, other than all the Craigslist killers, I, I think it's, I don't know, it's it, maybe it like fills that niche that like, you can get anything there, It's there's zero friction, it's this crazy wild, wild west of products and services. Um, and it actually benefits from the fact that it's all sort of anonymous because it allows first time sellers and, and buyers who tend to make up a lot of it, um, or infrequent sellers and buyers, it gives them just as much an opportunity as, as the frequent ones. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to uh, an old theory I've had about eBay for years, which is you want to go with the sellers that have bad pictures because they're clearly not doing it professionally, but they still have the item you want, right? Um and that's always an interesting thing because if you go with the really good green screen pictures, say you're buying, especially an item of clothing is particularly uh, a good example of this, but you know, even electronics or something else like that, if they have the green screen picture, that means they are selling 
you know, a hundred of those items a month, maybe more than that, right? Whereas the person who just did it on their shag carpeting or whatever, I mean, that person, this is the only one they're going to sell. They're going to make some mistakes. They probably don't have high enough rating. And, you know, you are taking a little bit of an over-under gamble on trusting them, but I'm an optimist, so I view the world from a, yeah, you know, most people are, are just are just trying to, you know, state it honestly and, and don't have the wits it would take to scam people. Um, and I've gotten some great deals doing that. And, you know, Craigslist is no exception. We, we, our dressers, we got from a Craigslist deal and I exasperated my moving crew who was some good friends of mine. Uh, this was three years ago, the last time I will ask my friends to move for me. Uh, you do eventually grow out of that. But I said, ooh, we got to pick up these dressers on the way over to my move. And what it was, it was a couple in my new neighborhood who were moving to England. They were moving in two weeks. And it was very clear to me that they spent you know, $600 a piece on these dressers. But more than anything, they just needed to get rid of them. Uh, the money was kind of something that would help them sleep at night but at the end of the day they just wanted to get them out the door and they gave us a great deal on them and we were able to get them out of their way and that's not the attitude you get from a you know a consistent a platform furniture seller now a platform furniture seller might do some other perks like deliver it or you know ensure the purchase or something else like that so you get other things out of it i'm i'm not saying that those people uh, are not good to go to but in this particular case we got a great thing that uh, aligned correctly with our timeline and correctly with where we want to be. And there's no way, no other way I know of to exploit that kind of, uh, that market opportunity. I mean, they're only going to sell dressers maybe twice in their life. And that was the first time. So maybe the uh, the primary distinction between things that like can be separated from Craigslist, uh, those things that can like be their own platform or um, are those for which there's some like other significant value add metric? Like um, I think Airbnb is probably the best example of that. Airbnb provided like in addition to an amazing UI, like the, the just in general the uh, the experience of being a user was great. Um, they provided a robust reputation system. Like in the case of getting a couch, like reputation doesn't matter at all. Like the only thing that you care about is hyperlocality. Um, whereas for things that you could theoretically separate from Craigslist, um, those things have some other, uh, metric that you care about beyond just, um, price, right? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that there's a place for the polished platforms, which would have been my vote to kind of to win the race in any given race. But that was that that that's the kind of naive assumption that every party is looking for pure polish. And listen, when you're looking for a place to stay, you definitely are. You want to be safe. You want it to be nice. Usually, you're on vacation, so you want it to be a good experience. I get that with Airbnb. I mean, I think they got the market on it. You know, couch surfing is an interesting concept too maybe that's a little more in the craigslist vein but they also know their market too so i I think the the polished platforms and the the craigslist you know open-ended platforms can can certainly coexist i'm not um not begrudging of both both one thing i think is really interesting about craigslist that you don't really see um with 
more polished products. And I think Airbnb is a perfect example of this is just like how Craigslist is willing to let you have a bad user experience and not take responsibility for it. And I think there actually is a place for that in the world. Um, like roommates being the perfect example, like Craigslist is doing the bare minimum to ensure that if you find a roommate on Craigslist, you actually like them and you can easily find a terrible roommate on Craigslist. Um, and that's not Craigslist's problem. But if a company that was more innovative, Airbnb, or even, even Uber or Amazon or anything that relies heavily on ratings um, would sort of not tolerate that. And basically the people that, that over time showed that they weren't good roommates would be banished from those platforms more or less. And I, I think it's kind of interesting that Craigslist has thrived by like occupying the space in the market where people that are willing to take that risk and maybe get something better than they would get otherwise maybe not, um, but use their own ingenuity rather than something about the platform to, to vet those people. Uh, it's actually worked for, for Craigslist for time. Yeah, Drew, I, I completely agree. And I think risk is a good lever to be able to pull. I mean, we all know how expensive cost of living is around here. And there's this kind of well-worn cliche about, you know, how starving artists come to New York and they have to live, you know, just in the roughest circumstances just to survive and make cost of living. And you imagine a more polished, more commodified, more kind of filtery platform, all those rough situations just fall off the platform. Like they're not there. And, you know, I think living in a rough situation is always an interesting question for people, but a lot of it's about it's about tolerance, right? So, uh, say say you're a light sleeper. Well, you can't deal with a roommate who's noisy, uh, and that would be called the quote rough situation. You know, that might be worth a two to three hundred dollar discount, right? Well, I'm not a light sleeper. I can sleep through anything. I live next to a freeway and right on top of the Long Island Railroad. Uh, beyond that, I can still sleep through anything. So for for me. I want to be able to find those market opportunities, and I don't particularly like the idea of a platform just hiding those things from me because the vast majority of people would say, oh, no, that's, that's, that's beyond, beyond the things that we could obviously agree on that are good for people. Uh, and I think that's interesting too, because you allow other people to fall into niches. Now, granted, you know, Brian alluded to this, there are murders that happen on Craigslist. So uh, the long tail is bad is really bad clearly uh but but the short tail is kind of interesting there's a lot of room to play around and to be honest it may actually support some people's existence i know people who couldn't live in new york if it wasn't for the opportunity to find low-cost sublets at those prices uh as opposed to you know just kind of be thrown out into the standard broker market and 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 uh you know get skinned alive as as most people do here Yeah, those sorts of systems where uh, Craigslist really thrives on uh, long feedback loops and uh, pe people who are providing a service and don't need to do it, um, I get the, the optimal market value of whatever they're providing. I mean, it's pretty much the greatest heir to uh, internet forums and 
you know, I guess this is where we're at, you know, Yahoo discussion groups. Craigslist is, is where, where it hits real life. Uh, what, what do you guys think? What do, what's your take on a replacement? Do you see a Craigslist replacement in the next 10 years? Do you see it just fading and being a thing that doesn't need to get replaced because the models changed and we're just all exchanging furniture via blockchain uh, for some I think reason? The point you made last is the, is, is the one that's probably right. Um, if there was going to be a Craigslist replacement, it would have happened now unless there's like a big time paradigm shift or like a platform shift. Um, obviously there, or not obviously, but I don't think that there's going to be a web product that replaces it. Um, one of my really good friends worked on the mobile product that was supposed to be the heir to the throne called Bonzi. I don't know if you guys remember it. It was a big time tech stars, big time funded all sorts of great VCs in it. And basically what it did was it brought the quote trust to the network and you could, you know, swap stuff with friends or friends of friends and it, it you know, leveraged your social graph and it crashed and burned. Um, basically, it was just slightly harder and, and it's it's really impossible to build up that network. Like if I want the example I used earlier, if I want head and the heart tickets five minutes before the concert, you know, you're going to go to Craigslist because that's where the liquidity is. Um, I, I don't I don't see. I think it'd be like I don't I don't envision I don't see how it'll get replaced in the near term without a, without a differently do with a, a completely different technology platform. Yeah, there are so few uh, functions that it provides, and those so like it's basically just like a listing service. Like that that is it, um, and. For the for it to work, the only things that it needs are a network and like a simple UI, and it has those already. And if you want to provide some sort of a, a significant competitor, you have to figure out ways to do both of those things better um, and significantly better, like better enough that you could pull people off of what is clearly the current uh, like market standard. Um, and doing those on such simple mechanics is incredibly difficult. <laughs> I certainly don't wouldn't want to be the person that had to try to do that. Yeah. Uh I think it's just one of those things that just persists, you know? It's just out there. And it's kind of like personal ads in the newspaper where nobody's really focused on it and who knows what it turns into. I mean, Inevitably, it, it turns into, you know, prostitution and drug trading ring. And then, of course, you know, then authorities get involved. But uh, beyond that, it just kind of exists down there and it just becomes a constant in American life. Yeah, but even those have moved for the most part, like onto the dark web. Like, there's now a new platform that provides those services better than Craigslist ever could. It, I, I want to ask you guys, like, if we, uh, I don't know if we're, starting to wrap things up but like is there anything that you guys specifically like can you think of anything that you would significantly improve on for craigslist like is there like say you had to make one improvement to significantly uh change or maybe even not that significantly change the way that craigslist currently operates what would you do i think figuring out payments is the big one um i always have this weird 
you know, when you're buying something, especially when it's, and, and again, this goes back to my primary use case, which is tickets. Um, if I'm buying tickets for something, a lot of times these are mobile tickets and it's sort of this weird dance of like, do I send you money over PayPal first? Do I get the tickets first? And then you hope that I pay like, that's the sort of thing where you really just want to make sure that the person's going to pay. And so what ends up happening is you just meet in person and that's really annoying. Um, I think that's the, that's, that, that would be like figuring out the payment piece would be the big one for me. Um, I don't know how you do that, but that would be mine. I don't, I don't think there's much else. So would that be like a, an S service? Um, what'd you say? So would that be like, would that be like oh. an escrow service on top of Craigslist? Could <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I I don't know. It's tricky. I mean, something to broker it would be nice. I'd agree with Brian if there was just kind of an option to say, hey, if you guys we notice you're doing a transaction, if you'd like to arrange it via this third party platform. I mean, I would never advocate them making their own, but. Uh, it, it does make a lot of sense to me. I, I will say for me, this might be overly technical, but the thing I would love to have with Craigslist is uh, email in listings. So you could actually just email to a Craigslist address and it would just create a listing for you. And that's one of my new favorite platforms, which is the uh, email communication format. And one of the things I love about it is it's stupidly easy. It it works well with the kind of inherent laziness of our our kind of current internet users. But also it's it it really eliminates barriers of entry for particularly older people. And if you could just say, hey, if you just send an email to this address, that'll list a you know a sublet opportunity in your townhouse. And I, I think particularly for senior citizens and um, and older folks, there's just a huge opportunity for usability there. And because Craigslist ads are basically just text anyway, it's like the perfect platform for that system. So I'd, I'd be a huge advocate of just email in a listing and it gets created immediately. One thing that um, I think would be really interesting to see, and maybe you could couple this with like a, with your idea is if you had like kind of a second layer, uh, maybe like a toolkit that you could layer on top of um, Craigslist that would allow you to say, I want to sell this, or I want this item liquidated uh, within a week and I'll take down to X price. And you could just dynamically adjust your pricing and not have to worry about it over the course of like the next uh, week or so. So like maybe... You, you, like you want to let go of your couch, but you'd appreciate another two days with it, but you'd be willing to sell it for 50 bucks. Um, and you really have to move on Friday and you want it gone. You'd be willing to sell it for five. If somebody's willing to pick it up on the last day, that kind of an automated pricing would be pretty cool. That's not a bad idea, man. You might have a little, uh, development project on your, on your radar there, because I, I like that idea too. I, I've got two weeks to sell this, keep producing ads, you know, on this sliding scale downward would be a not a bad Chrome plugin or something else to do. That would be a little add-on for it. Uh, that's actually a good transition anyway, because maybe you're going to work on this, Jordan. But uh, we want to spend the, the remainder of the show doing a little bit uh, about talking what we're up to, although I might be cutting Brian off 
too soon. He might have something else to say about Craigslist. So he might. But before he says anything about Craigslist, I'm just going to say, everyone, when you get a chance, talk about what you're up to. And uh, we're going to talk about coffee shops and blog posts and uh, books uh, to finish out the show. Because folks like uh, some of the ideas that Chad brought up last week. And so we're going to talk about some of our own as well. So I will cede the floor to just just talk about what you're doing, and we'll start with that. So we'll go around the room and say what everyone's doing, and then we'll we'll talk about coffee shops and and our criteria for those. Cool. So I'm still at the same company as it was last time, but uh, we're um, for you guys. We uh, what is that company? Yeah, we're the company's called Prerec um, Precision Recommendations, and we're building a uh, a tool for the mortgage-backed securities market. Um, basically, we've built this uh, this recommendation engine that analyzes the capital structure of uh, these instruments and can give you a uh, a list of recently traded securities that are structurally similar to whatever you give our system. So, like if you get a bid list that comes across your desk, you can drop all of the identifiers into our system, and we'll say, here's the the top 15 that have traded within the past few weeks. So you can figure out how to price something that might have been pretty difficult uh, prior to our system um, to price. And additionally, it allows you to like program in uh, like the interests of your clients. So if you use something like that your firm has on your book, um, is something that interests your clients, you'll get a little notification. So that's fun. Um, and we've gotten it to the point now where we're uh, starting to actively demo it to investors. Um, lots of progress has been made recently and it's, it's a ton of fun. Well, that's awesome. Very cool. Um, I wasn't on the last podcast, so I didn't get to hear that. Uh, congrats. Thanks, man. Um, I will jump in. And Trevor, should I do my? Uh, should I do some coffee shop talk as well? Uh, talk about what you're doing first, and then we'll we'll do the coffee shop talk as a group. That way, you know, people can skip to what part they want. Th- this is kind of like. The closest we have to a sponsored content section, because we all talk about what we're doing. So this is like the ad part. So this is what I usually skip over. <laughs> um, I I run Tacklebox Accelerator. Uh, it's a program for founders with full time jobs uh, who have a startup idea and aren't exactly sure how to how to get going. Um, one of our one of the people in the session put it really nicely this week. They said that they felt like they were in startup purgatory before they joined the program. Um, so if that sounds like you, uh, that's what we do. We help people figure out what it is they're actually trying to start, who their customers are, what the problem is they're solving. We go through, validate a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and then the idea is that hopefully you get to the point where you're ready to leave your job um, and we help you build the product. We've had a bunch of founders go on to raise millions of dollars and join Y Combinator and all that fun stuff. Um, yeah, and uh, and that, that's pretty much what I do. Hey guys, I'm Drew Austin. I work at Uber as my day job. I've been there for a long time, about five years now, um, but my free time, I, I write at a blog called Kneeling Bus. Uh, the URL for that is kneelingbus.net. And most of the writing I do these days is in my weekly newsletter, um, which if you go to that website, you can subscribe. Um, it goes out every Friday. And those are the main things that I'm up to right now.
let's talk about places we hang out and uh, read and the people we hang with. We're going to talk about uh, coffee houses and, and books and blog posts. And uh, this is another Ideas of Brian's, which I thought was good. Just kind of getting us on the record for some places we like to hang out. Uh, a lot of the people listening to us probably live in New York. So let's talk about it. I can, I can jump in. Um, my, coffee ha- my coffee cafe is Spread House Cafe at 116 Suffolk. It's a really, really great place to go. Um, terrific coffee, fast Wi-Fi, uh, big tables, Lower East Side, cool neighborhood. Um, I go there a fair amount. Uh, a blog post that I would read is this Keith Rabwai. Rabwai, I never know how to pronounce it. It's sort of a niche niche sort of deal. Um, it's an interview that it's sort of a rambling interview. It's, it's definitely worth your time. Uh, I've got a podcast that is the YC podcast interviewing the founder of Indie Hackers. And he sort of talks through the process of him deciding on an idea and, uh, pursuing it. It's, it's actually really interesting. I like his, his perspective on all this. And finally, I've got a book called the power of moments. And the crux of this book, I'm, I'm midway through it, but it's really interesting basically saying that all moments are not created equal. And when you do something, there are, you know, when you go on vacation, you remember three moments and people who make products tend to just leave those up to chance and sort of hope that something good happens that people remember. But these are all scientific things. The things that you remember are easy to create. Um, and you can kind of craft these moments and make sure that people come away with a soundbite that you want. Um, it's by some authors who have written a, a bunch of books, one called Mindset, a bunch of books that I really like, uh, and it's, it's very good so far. Uh, I will go next then. Um, for me, I'm going to go with something. I'm going to go out of New York this time because I was in Los Angeles last week, and it was a lovely trip. And I went to a part of Los Angeles that was the most... New York-like, which was the Downtown Arts District, as they're calling it now. It's just outside of Little Tokyo. And it's this kind of, you know, it's the standard art district flavor, which is that, you know, a bunch of old brick industrial buildings. They've been rehabbed. They become art galleries, coffee shops, bars, restaurants, and loft apartments. And that's a little different for L.A. You know, it's totally normal out here and, and most of the East Coast. But... uh you know they've they've got a much more sprawling metropolis there, so to see that in Los Angeles was really nice. And the place I went was Groundwork Cafe, which is at eight eleven Traction Avenue. Uh, really awesome, and they don't even give you an option between cold brew and nitro; they just give you nitro. Uh, it's delicious, and I really enjoyed it. I had a good time there, and I I thought the people were really nice and polite. And for my blog post this week, I'm going to highlight the art of Swedish death cleaning and other lessons from cleaning out my mother's house from Tracy Moore. And I know this seems a little grim, but this is actually the, it's kind of the yin to the yang of the Marie Kondo method of cleaning, which is this new concept called Swedish death cleaning, which is Marie Kondo's if you're not familiar with it, it's the uh, life-changing magic of tidying up 
from the Japanese author Marie Kondo, who's kind of become a bit of an organization and uh, decluttering expert. And there's now a Swedish counterpart that suggests that it's less important to focus on what Marie Kondo does, which is the positive aspects of getting rid of things, but instead focus on the negative shame of not getting rid of things. Because when you die, people will inevitably find those things, and what will they think about them? And uh, it's a pretty dark place to start, I'll admit, um, on house cleaning. But it's kind of an interesting read. Uh, this is in um, Mel on Medium. It's by Tracy Moore. But uh, the, the topic is basically just that, you know, certain items that you aren't going to get rid of are going to produce shame or they're just going to be pointless. I think for the vast majority of us, it's not the shame thing so much. It's just a lot of pointlessness. And really thinking about if someone was cleaning out your house, if you were to really just die randomly and you don't know it, what stuff would you not be thrilled for them to have to clean out, not be thrilled for them to have to deal with? Uh, It might be stuff worthy for you to get rid of. And I'm a big fan of decluttering, getting stuff out of the house, getting possessions out. So I like this a lot. Uh, My book is been talking a lot about uh, productivity and kind of other good reads like that. I'm going to highlight a book that I've, I've liked for a lot of years, and it's getting a little old at this point, but it's uh, The Age of Deleveraging uh, by Gary Schilling. And it's an economist's take on basically investment strategies from 2010 onward. And the reason I focus on it in this podcast is I actually think a lot of what he's talking about he talks about investment strategies, but I think he's also talking about what could be winning product strategies too. And because it was written in 2010, you get an idea for what already has worked. So some of the stuff has already been proven true because, of course, you know we're seven years past that at this point. Um, so ideas that he had about what would be good investments for the upcoming decade, uh, many of them came true. And I think it's further meaningful to consider them on into the future and what kind of products, what kind of markets you're looking at in regards to this uh, post-2009 recession mindset. It's a pretty dour uh, blog post recommendation you gave us there. Super dour. But getting rid of stuff is cool and it's awesome and it'll make you happy. So that's not the dower part. <laughs> there was a, uh, what was it, a 99% Invisible podcast a while back about um, this town where everybody had uh, created their will. Um, kind of gave me pause, made me think about <laughs> planning that out more thoroughly and how we don't do it in our society. Um, anyway, my, uh, my thoughts on coffee, book, and blog. Um, I can, my favorite place in... Uh, around where I live right now is a place called Bergen. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever been there. It's like this massive beer hall um, and everyone just hangs out and drinks coffee during the day. Um, it's huge tables, big open space. Um, the Wi-Fi is like, tolerable. Um, but by work, I usually go to Bluestone Lane, um, which is uh, woefully mainstream, <laughs> unfortunately, but their espresso is the best I've maybe ever had. Um, and then this month I've read well, two of the books that I think are worth mentioning. Um, one is 
come and take it, which is, I don't know if you guys know Cody Wilson. He's the uh, the guy who uh, created the 3D printed gun. Uh, he wrote a book about that, and that was pretty enjoyable. Um, Lauren was a little irked at me for <laughs> for reading that because she's, uh, she's not the biggest fan of uh, weapons, which is understandable. And proliferating them is, I don't know, it was something interesting. I wanted to learn more about his... Uh, mental space as he was going through that time of uh, like initially creating it and then having the uh, the state kind of crack down on him um, and how he went through the whole legal battle surrounding that and then another book uh, is Platform Revolution which is I have always picked up a lot of stuff about um, platform dynamics just by virtue of paying attention to you know pop startup literature but this book, um, actually I've got it over here, let me grab it. Um, the authors are uh, Joffrey Parker, Marshall Van Alestein, and Sangeet, Sangeet Paul Chowdhury. And they do a phenomenal job of analyzing the way that platform uh, businesses operate and the different incentives that are in place and what makes them grow, like different strategies you can take for building one or maintaining it uh, in the long run, the potential regulatory issues that might uh, inevitably follow the success of the platform business model. Um, as far as blog posts, um, I didn't really have any good written things that I encountered recently, but that, uh, that YC Indie Hacker interview that Brian mentioned was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and in fact, so good that I ended up really diving into Indie Hacker and uh, listened to his podcast um, for a few episodes and really enjoyed that. And then additionally, um, YC recently paired with um, Stanford to do, I, I, I don't know, I wouldn't say recently, it's a little over a year ago, I think, but they recorded a whole class um, that is just these really successful founders who come into uh, this classroom setting and give a lecture on um, something that was relevant to their success. Uh, and it's a lot of names that you would recognize. Uh, and I really enjoyed like essentially putting a voice to that name. Uh, Keith Rebois, or however you pronounce his last name, is one of the, uh, the lectures that's coming up. So I'm looking forward to figuring out how you actually do pronounce his name. Um, but those are, my, uh, those are my bits for the week, for the month, I guess. And to wrap us up, I will give my recommendations. Um, for coffee shop, um, my I so I live in Williamsburg, uh, kind of near near the East River. Um, a place I really like to go is is a restaurant slash cafe slash bar called Fabrica, F A B B R I C A. Uh, it's got a really good vibe. They when the weather's good, they open up like the whole the walls kind of raise up and it becomes open air. Um, it's unfortunately for for them usually super empty which is why i love it but it's a very good place and i think it's a hidden gym that i actually hesitate to tell too many people about because once it gets discovered i think it could be overly packed with people but it's a it's a perfect place to work um and everything they have there is great so i'd recommend it to anyone um as for books um this is an oldie but a goodie uh getting things done also known as GTD by David Allen, um, is a book that I just read this year that's been around since 2001. 
It's one of the most iconic productivity books out there. I think it's one of the books that got the whole productivity movement off the ground. And um, without getting too in the weeds about about the methods actually discussed, it basically forces you to to put in place a system in, in your life that will enable you to handle every new thing that comes at you and, and put it into the system and and execute things at, at immediately as they need need to happen. So um, if you haven't read it, read it. Like everyone told me it was life-changing. I didn't really necessarily believe them, but once I read it, it actually was. Uh, as for blog posts, um, this isn't exactly a blog post, um, and it's also kind of morbid, as was Trevor's uh, blog post, but um, it's for anyone who's interested in self-driving cars, it's an uh, MIT project called Moral Machine that lets you judge different ethical scenarios that, that autonomous vehicles might be placed in. So you get shown these slides that have trade-offs, like do you have the car veer off the road and kill this many people that are in the car or keep going and hit these pedestrians and you, every, every AB scenario gets shown to you and you, you say which one you think is the appropriate decision for the car to make. And then you get to see data on what everyone else said. And it's a really interesting way of, of sort of easing ourselves into the ethics of, you know, things that we're used to having people decide how we will feel about, about a day when, when machines and and algorithms are deciding them instead. And I found it to be kind of, uh, kind of sobering just to even, to even look at some of the scenarios and think about about what uh, what world we're kind of rushing headlong into. So I recommend everyone check it out. It's moralmachine.mit.edu. And that's all I got. Drew, I have a, uh, a good anecdote for you on the yeah. GTD front. And also, I, I, I agree with checking out Moral Machine. I think it's an interesting thing. We we are heading into a world, no doubt, that will have less car accidents overall, but we'll have, uh, I would argue, an, a greater number of ethical conundrums, which is always tricky for people to process. Yep. Machines are okay with it, but uh, it's going to be tougher for people. So, cool. Well, I think we got everybody's uh, everybody's opinions on this. Uh, if nobody has any final parting words, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, coming up, we're going to have some more interviews with entrepreneurs and people working in kind of active product development. We're going to keep talking about topics, and uh, please send us feedback. As I've, I've said, please send us private Twitter messages <laughs> if you don't like the show, and public if you do. Uh, just to keep it easy, you can certainly send things to me. Uh, this week, which is at Pair of the Week. And thanks so much for listening.